All right, we begin our class understanding your religion, the seven major doctrines that define the Christian faith. This is lesson number 17 in the series. Uh, we're talking about the sub-doctrine of perfection today. And the title of this particular section is God's New Vision of Mankind. So we begin by doing a little bit of a review, do this at the beginning of every class. Uh, and I do this because um, all of these doctrines, all these ideas, you, know, you have to keep them all together and each week you know, I add a new idea that, that, that kind of uh, fills out the, the picture. It's like a puzzle. You know, every week we add a new piece of the puzzle. So we have to keep our eye on everything we've put together so far as we continue to add uh, pieces of the uh, information that give us this overview of the Christian religion. That's of course the, the goal, of, the, uh, the goal of, our, uh, of our class. Okay, so let's do a little bit of a uh, review here. Uh, we said that there are seven major doctrines uh, that explain the uh, Christian faith and uh, we've done five of them so far. The inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Christ, uh, the idea of original goodness, the fall of man, and the doctrine of reconciliation. Those are the first five major doctrines. We have two more to go. But we stopped at the fifth doctrine, the doctrine of reconciliation, and said that there are 10 sub-doctrines that explain this one major doctrine. And the first five uh, sub-doctrine, the doctrine of election, uh, predestination, atonement, regen uh, redemption, and regeneration. And those first five sub-doctrines are actually the plan of salvation. These explain how God accomplished the reconciliation of man back to himself. And then I said there are an additional five sub-doctrines that describe reconciliation, uh, adoption, justification, perfection, sanctification, and salvation. And I said that these five uh, these five sub-doctrines actually uh, look at the plan of salvation or look at the doctrine of reconciliation from various perspectives. In other words, the doctrine of the adoption looks at the plan of salvation, looks at reconciliation from a human perspective, uh, justification looks at it from a legal perspective. And that's about as far as we went today. You see we're going to be doing the third or you know, the, the third sub-doctrine in this second series, the doctrine of perfection. Now, when we talked about justification, that's the last thing that we uh, talked about, and I want to just review that just uh, briefly for a, for a moment. Uh, we said that there are two ways of being acceptable or justified before God. One of the ways uh, is the um, primitive sacrificial system, you know, man's way. How does man justify himself before God? Uh, through the primitive, uh, through either a primitive sacrificial system or through law keeping, you know, what I call perfectionism, or through philosophy, you know, figuring out what you know, life is all about, um, aside from uh, calculating that God is a part of that equation. In other words, justifying our existence without reference to God. A lot of the philosophies do that. You know, they simply answer the question, why am I here? What is this all about? without you know, calculating the idea that there is a God. Okay? Most philosophy uh, is like that. So that's one way that you know, man tries to be justified 
um, uh, in his own soul, in his own uh, being. And then we said there's God's way. And God's way is uh, taking advantage of the opportunity now. You know, now is the time to be uh, saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 2. Um, and the method of justification, again, we're just reviewing stuff here, is the, um, is the method of imputation. In other words, God imputes, God transfers, God gives to you justification based on the idea that you have faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. You don't accomplish anything, you don't figure out anything, you don't offer anything, you don't do any of those things. What you do is you believe. You believe in Jesus Christ and you respond to Jesus Christ uh, in faith and because of that God simply takes the righteousness, the acceptability that Jesus has and He transfers it to you. Okay? Very important uh, idea. So the doctrine of justification we said uh, we're justified when we become acceptable to God according to His standard. We become acceptable when God confesses or confers rather or imputes acceptability upon us based on our faith in Jesus Christ. And I know this, you know, this is a lot of words, a lot of theological words, but the biggest mistake people make uh, that causes them so many burdens and so much anguish is that they don't understand this idea in Christianity. They become Christians and they spend their whole life trying to justify themselves before God. They don't understand that God's already given them that. And whatever they do, they do it out of a sense of um, gratitude. They do it as a witness of their faith. You know, what I, if I try to live a holy life, I'm trying to live a holy life not in order to be saved. I'm trying to live a holy life in order to say, thank you God for saving me. I'm living a holy life to say to God every single day, I believe God, I believe. Okay. So God confers this acceptability upon us when we express our faith. Remember, it's based on faith, not on works. So God confers this acceptability upon us when we express our faith in Jesus Christ at baptism. In Galatians 3.26, Paul talks about the method here, the method that we are justified. He says, for you are all sons of God. There's the adoption. Remember we talked about the doctrine of adoption. For you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the, there's the, there's the gospel. Okay? Now watch. What's the method? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You know, you've taken what was on Christ, the cloak of righteousness. You put, you, it comes off of, well not it comes off of, but it's given to you from Christ and you put it onto yourself and you have righteousness. So yes, is salvation by faith? Absolutely it's by faith. But how is that faith expressed? Well, Paul says, for all of you who are baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. You've, you've received the imputation. That's the method that the Bible, uh, the Bible teaches. So we're justified by faith, and the Bible teaches us to express that faith acceptably through repentance and baptism. So God's plan was that Jesus would live up to God's standard and thus earn an acceptable standing before God. We can't earn 
acceptability because the only way to earn acceptability is by living a perfect life. We can't do that. Even if we want to, we can't. So Jesus comes and He does it. He earns acceptability. He lives a full life without breaking any of the commands. And because of that, He's able to share that status with those who believe in Him. So justification describes God's plan from a legal perspective, how we relate to God through the law. So today in our lesson, we're going to look at God's plan. Remember I said the first five, that's the plan of salvation, the first five sub-doctrines, and the next five sub-doctrines are different ways to look at the plan. Okay? So justification was the way to look at God's plan of salvation through a prism of law from a legal perspective. Today we're going to look at the plan of salvation and we're going to talk about the doctrine of perfection and the doctrine or the sub-doctrine of perfection, it explains how God sees us. So it explains salvation from God's perspective. Now the doctrine of perfection describes the quality of the condition of those who are in Christ. Let me give you an example. Somebody's in the hospital, right? What's their condition? Well, they're, in the, they're hospitalized. That's their condition. They're hospitalized. But what is the quality of their condition? Are they in critical, are they in critical condition? Are they stable? Are they being, you know what I'm saying? So the doctrine of perfection looks at the quality of our condition. What's our condition? Saved. What's the quality of that condition? Well, the doctrine of perfection explains that. So the um, biblical concept is different. The biblical concept of the idea of perfection is different than the worldly or human concept. When we talk about perfection as you know, when we use the term perfection in our daily conversation, we're talking about something that has no flaw, that is perfect, something that satisfies all the requirements, 100%. You, know, you passed with 100%. When we say that's perfect, it means there are no flaws. But the biblical concept of perfection is different. For example, in the Old Testament, they use the term perfect to denote something that was healthy or complete or wholehearted, but did not imply necessarily that something was sinless. So when the Old Testament talks about perfection or wholeheartedness, it's not talking about without any mistakes. For example, in Kings 8, 1 Kings 8, 61, it says, let your heart therefore be wholly devoted, that term there, perfect, wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in His statutes and to keep His commandments as as this day. This idea of wholly devoted or perfect meant not wavering in your faith. It didn't mean a heart that never sins. It didn't mean a person didn't make any mistakes. It meant not wavering in faith despite imperfection, despite problems, I, I, I still believe. The hardest thing for a Christian is to continue to believe they're saved while they watch themselves sin, <laughs> as they observe their own imperfection. 
is that this duality that keeps happening all the time. Okay? Uh, another example is um, like fruit. Fruit is perfect when it's ripe, when it's fully developed, not if it has like no specks on it, no little dits on it. Okay? Well, in the New Testament, the teaching follows the same pattern about this word and this idea of perfection. The word perfect and the idea of perfection suggests wholeness, ripeness, full-grown maturity. For example, when corn is ripe and mature, uh, the word that they used was it was perfect. It didn't imply that it was without flaw, only that it had reached full term, was ready for harvest. Okay. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27-28, Paul says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here he's talking about preaching to the Gentiles. The mystery is the gospel. Okay? And that God gave him the charge to go preach to the gospel to the Gentiles. So he says, To whom God willed to make known what the riches of the glory of His mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, we proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete. There's that term perfect again. Some Bibles even have the word perfect. Perfect. So perfection, completeness, maturity spiritually can be pursued in many ways, but we can reach wholeness and spiritual ripeness, Paul says, only through Christ. So there are a lot of ways to become spiritual and to grow, but he says the final maturity only comes through Jesus, through Jesus Christ. So uh, a major deviation in this teaching came through John Wesley. He was an Anglican. Methodist churches actually you know, began with he and his brother. He taught that perfection in the New Testament meant sinless perfection now in this lifetime. His doctrine was largely due to the influence of a book that he was reading called A Treatise on Christian Perfection by a man called, named William Law. And Wesley argued that after regeneration, remember regeneration, we become you know, born again. After regeneration or rebirth, Wesley taught that a person had the ability to actually overcome any and every sin. That was his concept of the doctrine of perfection. Although it is true that with the new birth comes the ability to overcome sin in our lives, the danger in overemphasizing this fact is that we lose sight of the plan of God, whereby Christ has successfully dealt with all of our sins on the cross once and for all, as far as our salvation is concerned. Again, I don't make an effort to overcome sin in order to save myself. That's, that's a works thing. So if we see the doctrine of perfection as a teaching that says, in order to be perfect, we must overcome every sin in our lives, then we've misunderstood. If this is what we understand by the doctrine of perfection, then we are going to be locked back into a works-oriented salvation leading to frustration and discouragement. Let's remember very, very well what the Bible sin says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means everybody sins. 
Then it says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's John speaking to Christians. And he's saying, you're always going to sin. Don't ever say you're not a sinner. You've overcome all sin, because if you say that, you're a liar, you're, you're delusional. And then in Romans 3.20, it says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the rules, the purpose of the law is simply to show us that we're sinners. We don't get to be perfected through the law. No, nothing gets perfected through the law. That was not the purpose of the law. I mean, it's not that we wouldn't like to be perfect. We just can't. So we have to find another way to be perfect. And this is what the doctrine of perfection explains. So the question is, how do we become perfect, spiritually ripe, whole, mature, when we continue to experience the failure of sin in our lives. That's the reality. In my spiritual self, I, I want to be you know, like Christ. I want to be perfect. I want to overcome every sin. So how do, I, you know, how do I get to that perfection while I am consciously aware of the imperfection of myself? So the doctrine of perfection explains how God's plan has achieved this status for us in Jesus Christ. And Paul explains it in Philippians chapter 3 verses 4 to 16. So let's go to Philippians 3. The rest of this class is a textual study of Philippians. So if you'd rather read up here is fine. If you want to look at your Bibles, that's great. So let's read verse 4 to 6. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So Paul reviews everything that in every culture and generation that represents the perfect person. He had the right culture. He was spiritually superior and advanced. He was a religious zealot. He had a clear conscience. In other words, he felt acceptable before God through law keeping. He felt he had no flaws. He kept all the ceremonial law, all the tithing, all that stuff. He says, you know. So let's keep reading what this perfect man found out. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, meaning everything else he was talking about, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So Paul says whatever things that he had which could be measured to achieve perfection before, you know, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, all those status things, all those religion, everything else that, that were normally measured to achieve perfection before, he says, do not count anymore now that he has come to know Christ. He thought he was perfect before, but now that he has faith in Jesus, now that he knows Christ and His word, he realizes that he didn't even know what the word perfect meant. He was so far off the mark. So the way he is perfect, meaning 
spiritually ripened and mature through faith in Jesus is far superior to the perfection he thought he had through his culture and his zeal and his law keeping before. Verse nine, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, there's the perfectionism, I do all the things correctly, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So God has established that union with Jesus Christ through faith, this is the thing that makes a perfect, perfect or mature in God's eyes, not law keeping. And brothers and sisters, this is the core of the doctrine of perfection right there. You want to be perfect in God's eyes, perfect, ripened, fully mature. Well, that status can only be obtained if you're united to Jesus by faith. You can't achieve it by works, even if you're good at works. Verse 10 and 11. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay. So the result of this perfection that I have based on faith in Christ is that I will be resurrected from the dead as He was. Now I may lose the status of perfection based on the worldly criteria, the Jews will reject me, the legalists will reject me, and so on and so on. I may lose all of that. I may even die for this faith, he says. But it's worth it because it is this faith in Jesus that signals my perfect spiritual state in God's eyes. I mean, I may have trouble seeing it, but God doesn't. So someone may ask the question, okay, well then why struggle against sin if faith in Jesus Christ is what makes you perfect in God's eyes? I mean, absolutely, it's a good question. Why should I make the effort? If I'm perfect because I have faith in Jesus, why make the effort to struggle again? Why say no to myself all the time? Well, the answer is that slavery to sin is a denial of one's faith in Jesus. And struggle against sin is a continuing expression of faith. So the greater the struggle, the greater the love and the faith. Peter the Apostle says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 1 Peter 4.1. It doesn't mean that the person never sins, rather that the person no longer loves sin or lives for sin. Now that person lives for Christ and loves righteousness. I love doing what is right and I hate it when I do what is wrong and I do what is wrong lots of times. So Paul then, you know, he was looking backwards. I used to be this, I used to be that, but now because of Christ I'm this. All right? Now in this passage he kind of looks forward. He was looking back, now he looks forward. Okay? Verses 12 to 14. He says, not that I have already obtained it, this, this perfection, that I'm, I, you know, not that I have seen myself fully, fully you know, achieved everything, 
or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So Paul explains that he has not obtained the fruit or the results that come from being in this mature, perfect state yet. Now here it may be confusing because he refers to the results or the final effects of perfection by lumping them in with the status of perfection itself. Let me explain this to you a little bit. Um, when uh, President Obama first went into office, for example, some of the reporters were saying that, well, the president didn't sound presidential in his first few weeks. What they meant was that he didn't speak with the authority and the confidence of an experienced president. However, he already was in office and he had the title and the position of president. See what I'm saying? So Paul is referring to the things that come as the result of being in this perfect or mature state in Christ. Things that only spiritually perfect people can hope for. Again, only presidents can hope to one day sound and act presidential. I cannot hope to sound and act presidential. Why? Because I'm not president. I can do everything I ever, improve my language skills and you know, study foreign policy and be able to answer questions on all the difficult political and social issues you know, and be calm and, and, and have a you know, hundred people ask me all kinds of questions and be calm and reserved. And I can do all of that, but I'll never sound presidential. Why? Because I'm not president. Only the president can sound presidential. So Paul mentions two things that his perfect status before God permits him to strive for. So I'm sorry, I didn't finish my analogy here. Only the perfect can strive for the things of perfection. That's the point I made. Only those who are perfect can strive for the things of perfection. And in this passage, Paul talks about the things that the perfect can shoot for. Okay. So he says two things that his perfect status before God permits him to strive for. First of all, resurrection. Now resurrection will only happen after he dies, obviously. But only the perfect can hope for and strive for resurrection. Those who are not in Christ, you know what? They can write books about heaven. They can talk about all the visions they've had in their dreams. They can speculate all day long about the afterlife. They can give courses. They can make videos. They can speak in front of 10 million people, blah, blah, blah. But if they're not in Christ, it's a waste of time. They cannot strive for resurrection. Oh, they'll be resurrected, okay, to judgment but not to eternal life. And then the second thing, glorification. This will only happen when Christ returns and He is transformed into the actual likeness of Christ. In other words, you, know, you die, you're buried, you're resurrected, but there are two steps after resurrection of the body, right? 
you're resurrected, you're glorified, meaning you're equipped with a body that enables you to live in the spiritual dimension. We cannot live in the spiritual dimension in this sinful body. We need a new covering, we need a new envelope. And that envelope, we call it the glorified body. Okay? The glorified body is a body that enables us to live, to exist, to function in the spiritual dimension. Only the perfect can strive for the glorified. And then there's one other thing he doesn't mention here, but I'll, it's in context. So there's resurrection, there's glorification, and then there's a final step. Then there's exaltation. And exaltation is taking the position at the right hand of God in Christ. In other words, we, by virtue of our faith and union with Christ, because we now have a glorified body, will participate in the Trinity. How else do you explain that we're at the right hand of God with Jesus? <laughs> so Paul is saying only the perfect can strive for that. Alright, so glorification, this happens only when Jesus comes. So these things, he says, are dual goals that God originally called Paul, the apostle, and he calls us today, through the gospel. So Paul, he, Paul in this passage says he presses forward to the goal set before him by God and made possible by the perfection that he enjoys in Jesus Christ. One day he's going to die and resurrect in order to put on a glorified body suitable for existence in the spiritual world, and as I say, and then exaltation to the right hand of Christ, but that glorified body will be perfectly matched with the character that Christ imposes on His own character. So Paul consciously pursues these goals and he encourages his readers to do the same because only perfect people can try for these things. I can't, I can't press that analogy enough. You know, only people who make it to the Olympics can try for the gold or the silver or the bronze, right? I can be the greatest athlete in the world, blah, 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 but if I didn't qualify at the trials for the Olympics, I cannot compete for the gold. So only those perfect people in Christ, they're the only ones who can strive for glorification, resurrection, exaltation, all those things. All right, verse 13 and 14. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He's not glorified yet. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the method to reach these begins, oddly enough, not with effort to do better, the, way, the method to, to pursue these goals for the perfect, step number one, and the step that we always forget, us. Forget the past. Forget the past. I mean, 80% you know, of the spiritual counseling, the pastoral counseling I've done with people, most of the time it's because they're focused on the past. 
the thing I did wrong, I screwed up, I shoulda, I coulda, coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, whatever, they're always focused on the past. They're always trying to make up for the past. What does Paul say? Forgetting the past. I mean, Paul, forgetting the past. I mean, he tortured and jailed, maybe even killed Christians. And I've mentioned this before. Do you see anywhere in the New Testament where Paul goes back and tries to free the people from prison that he put there or make an apology or bring money to the families? He... No. The past is the past. Can't change the past. You just can't change it. So Paul says the perfect ones, they have the faith to forget the past. And it requires faith to forget the past because you're, you know, the voice from Satan himself is saying, forget the past. You can't forget all that bad stuff you did. You can't forget yesterday you shut off your mouth. You can't, how can you forget that? Don't forget that. That needs to be, that's you, buddy. That's who you are. Forget the past, he says. Put aside both the failures, which are covered by the blood of Christ, and also the successes, which cannot achieve the perfection you need to be able to obtain the goals. It don't matter if you won the gold at the Olympics, for real, that's, that's worth nothing <laughs> in pursuing these other goals. Paul strives forward to be, what does he say? In Christ, how? Through faithful obedience. The thing I'm shooting for now, I'm trying to know what the Lord wants me to do and I want to do that. I'm striving to do that. I'm striving to be like Christ through submission. I am striving to be with Christ through resurrection. That's what my life is, is focused on. Then in verse 15, 16 he says, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will, reveal it, uh, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So here Paul addresses those Christians who understand that their perfection is accomplished or made possible through continued faith in Christ, not self-achievement, not rule-keeping. He says to these people that they should follow his example, and his example is that he presses on. He doesn't look back at past failures, past mistakes, past sins. He doesn't look at self or excuses himself or condemns himself or congratulates himself. You know, in repentance, you know, I, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I, I repent you know, almost every day because every day I'm thinking, you know, this attitude, this, this could be improved. You know, I need to, um, Lord, I'm glad you showed me that. You know, when, when the Lord when the Spirit points out a sin in your life, you know, don't be afraid, don't, don't justify, don't hide. Say thank you. Oh, thank you for pointing that out to me. Because now I can kind of work on that and get rid of that thing. And that helps me to press on. Okay. What does he do? He looks ahead at the goal that God has set for him and all those like him. So Paul tells his readers that if this is what they are doing, then they are doing the right thing. They're shooting for the right goal. Now, he realizes that not everybody may be on the same spiritual page. Some may only be beginning in Christ. Others may be eager to move forward. And still others, they may just be unsure of their status. So Paul says that if you have different ideas on these matters 
perhaps some unanswered questions or doubts, don't worry, he says. God will lead you into maturity and into the confidence that perfection eventually brings you. How do you know someone is really perfected in Christ? How do you know it? Does he know a lot of Bible by heart? Does she do a lot of work for the church? Well, yes, that. But the real way to know it is that person is confident in their salvation. There's no doubt. They don't doubt themselves and they don't doubt Christ. That's how you can tell someone is mature in the Lord. In the meantime, he says, maintain this teaching as the standard for the understanding of what perfect is and is not. He, um, he doesn't justify teaching just any old thing, but he says to be patient until this doctrine, the idea that perfection is attained through faith and not law keeping, he says not everybody grasps that idea immediately. It takes a time to really grasp that idea. So he's saying to the people, you know, be patient. If you get that, if you get it, good for you. But not everybody gets it right away. So be patient. The Lord will reveal it to them. Everybody's at a different stage of, of, of uh, development. So this is the fundamental concept of the gospel. And if one does not know or understand this, it can hinder all other types of spiritual growth and peace of mind. You know, the idea of we're, we're perfected through faith and not through rule keeping. All right, so the doctrine of perfection explains that in this life we reach the ultimate state of spiritual completeness when we are united to Christ by faith. We don't and cannot achieve perfection by overcoming every sin in our lives. I try to overcome sin in my life. Why? I know it's pleasing to the Lord and it develops my spiritual strength. But I know that I'm not going to be judged on the degree of success I have in that. And I know it's counterintuitive, okay? But here's the thing, as I, as I make an attempt to improve my character, my spiritual character, that attempt strengthens my faith. And as my faith is strengthened, it enables me to more competently overcome my faults. And as I overcome my faults, it builds my faith. You know? they, just, they just keep feeding off of each other. Sinless perfection is granted us when we are fitted with a glorified body after resurrection. And until then we enjoy, this is the point here, until that time we enjoy that status based on our faith in Christ and we demonstrate that faith in our daily struggle against sin, not our perfect victory over sin. So Christ has already won the victory for us with His life and His death on the cross and of course His resurrection. So let's do a summary, 10 words or less, main biblical doctrines. God always knew that Jesus' sacrifice would perfect His children. God always knew that Jesus' sacrifice would perfect His children. Okay, so that's, you know, we could probably do more lessons on that, but gives you an idea of the sub-doctrine of perfection. And the sub-doctrine of perfection is the, um, the plan of salvation as God sees it. God sees the plan of salvation as creating perfection in His children. God sees us as perfect.